Hello and welcome to the Inside the Post-Dispatch podcast, the podcast that takes you into our newsroom here at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I'm Bryce Gray, your host this Thursday morning on June 6th, and I'm joined by Kim Bell and Christine Byers, two reporters who cover crime and have had a very busy week on their hands. They'll share more today about their coverage of major breakthroughs in the abduction and murder of nine-year-old Angie Hausman, who disappeared from the suburb of St. Anne one day in November 1993. After nearly 26 years, this week a suspect has been charged with murder in the case. Before turning to them, a reminder that all our podcasts can be found online at stltoday.com slash podcasts. Kim and Christine, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Bryce. So uh, first, Kim, can you take us back to 1993? Tell us about this crime, but also put it into context for us. Uh, you know, it was before my time here, but sure. I get the sense that, uh, you know, it's one of the most prominent crimes and cold cases to ever haunt the uh, community. Here. Yeah, I think you're right. I was uh, a, a young police reporter at the time, and I'd been maybe on the beat a couple years, two years maybe. And for people who lived in St. Louis at the time, you know, they, they lived this. They understand it. But for those who weren't here, let me, let me say, this put the region in panic mode. Um, I, I wasn't a parent at the time. I didn't have a child yet. Um, and I can talk about that later, about how I look at things with a different perspective now. But I sensed this, this fear among parents. Um, you know, here was Angie Hausman, who had been on her school bus and uh, got off a school bus and walked. She was supposed to walk maybe a half a block to her home. It's in a a quiet, blue-collar neighborhood in St. Anne, you know, six duplexes down, and that's where her folks lived on the right, and and that was it. On this particular day, there were some quirky facts in play, but the people who normally watch out for the kids did not see what happened, and Angie's gone. When her father got home from work that night, he said, he normally would see her book bag on the ground, and that's when he knew that something was wrong. This region was in panic mode, especially when, a short time later, another little girl, Cassidy Center, went missing. Um, Police solved that and determined it was a neighbor and unrelated to Angie. But for a time, these two cases were looked at by police as possibly being connected. I remember one commander even used the phrase serial killer. Um, Didn't turn out to be the case, but uh, again, parents were were in panic mode, neighbors were turning in neighbors, people were suspicious of everyone. They they were calling police with all sorts of tips, a white van. Um, It just, it was a a scary time. What about that particular day, Kim, because you've told me this story before about the woman that usually watched the kids and she wasn't there that day? I think she was taking care of someone um, and was, again, again, this is a fluke. What, 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 you know, this is in broad daylight where a girl has to walk, um, you know, this is a bus stop that, that lets out right near a Catholic school. It's a nice neighborhood, you know, again, broad daylight. Um, people have patterns, right? Normally there would be two people watching out that window. Um, didn't happen on that day. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's interesting how everything came into play. Yeah. Well, and for listeners who might not be aware of the full story, can you uh, fast forward to how, how it tragically ended? Yes, I'm sorry. So, um, so she went missing on November mm-hmm. 18th of 1993. 
And then on November 27th, about nine days later, uh, a deer hunter in the Bush Wildlife Area of St. Charles County found Angie. And they found her um, tied to a tree. the medical examiner said she died of exposure, but she had been tortured. She had been sexually assaulted and left to die. And I'll tell you, the day that her, that her body was found, I mean, there was always a hope that she would be found. You know, everyone hoped that. They all maybe had a feeling that this wouldn't go well, but everyone had the hope that she would be found alive. And uh, I was there the day that they found her body and then continued reporting into the night. And I was up at St. Anne at the police station when her parents were brought in. And her I just remember her, her stepfather was so um, nervous. He, he was shaking so badly. And, and the family was just, just looking at their faces. And looking at the, the faces of the police officers. A lot of these guys had young kids about the same age, and this affected everyone. And so now here we are today in 2019. So I, I know DNA led to this suspect, but uh, do we know more about that? And, and I'm curious too, uh, do we know, for instance, is this like the Golden State Killer arrest where you know a 23andMe kind of genetic ancestry crowdsourcing sort of breakthrough came into play? or or have they have they said sort of what happened here? Yes, they've explained it, and it isn't the Golden State. I had the mm-hmm. same questions, of course, because mm-hmm. we've all heard of that lately, that technology. Yeah. Um, but this was much more um, nuanced. So apparently um, when you test a piece of evidence for DNA, you pretty much only get one shot at it um, before you can't. It, it's compromised. You can't really do it again. So... Um, in the case, in this case, there were several, there were multiple pieces of evidence, hundreds, in fact, um, because at the crime scene, they found she was still wearing a shirt. She was, um, they had found a bunch of trash at the scene. They found handcuffs, uh, duct tape, all kinds of materials. And um, one, so the forensic scientists basically, when they're looking at a piece of evidence, they think to themselves, okay, what makes the most sense here in terms of what the offender would have had to have come in contact with? So obvious, you know, places that they searched were um, certainly the duct tape because the offender wasn't using scissors. Um, and for a while, they were zeroing in on fingerprint uh, technology. That was the only evidence they had at that point, but it didn't it didn't help. Um so by the time the um, crime lab in St. Charles County got the duct tape, the adhesive on the duct tape had actually turned to powder and was pretty much useless to look for any sort of saliva DNA and that sort of thing. So they really focused a lot on um, her underwear because it had been torn into three pieces. Um, one of the pieces was um, stuffed into her mouth and uh, her face and mouth had been Uh, covered with duct tape, everything except her nose. And so they knew that the offender would have had to come in contact with the underwear. Two other pieces of the underwear were in a Dollar General bag found at the scene. And so um, one of the problems was there were no obvious signs on this underwear of a blood or seminal fluid sample. Um, So they knew that it would either have to be touch DNA or saliva, something they couldn't see. 
But at the same time, this particular piece of underwear um, was pink and had dye on it. And at that, it wasn't until mid-2017 that technology evolved enough and chemistry came along far enough to basically allow scientists to test clothing that had dye on it and to the point where the dye would not interfere with extracting the sample. And so they pretty much knew that was on the horizon and they waited until they could get that because they knew they only had one shot once again. And that, that this piece of clothing, you know, certainly was, it was pink. Um, so they waited for that. In addition to that, um, there have been recent changes in the way in which a sample is considered a, a quote-unquote match. So the, the required, the, the criteria, if you will, for the amount of um, locations on a DNA profile that must match a person has expanded and changed. So that made it uh, easier to enter into the CODIS database, which is a national database of, of criminal DNA profiles. So those two things combined um, in, in the forensic scientists that work on, worked on this in the St. Charles County Crime Lab, they really waited um, because they knew those things, those developments were on the horizon, and they wanted to test everything. So they were in the middle of, they had three phases of testing going on because they had so much evidence. And the underwear was among the last pieces of evidence that they tested. And they were about to send off some pieces to a different lab that had different technology. And uh, they got this this hit right before they did that. And it was the final phase of their in-house testing. And one of the interesting things, too, about the way they tested it was... Um, Apparently, it was a little bit unconventional. Um, the scientists that worked on this in particular cut over 100 samples, which are like little tiny scraps of clothing from each of the three pieces of underwear. And um, I believe he said it was like 164 pieces. Um, so you're talking between, you know, 40 to 60 pieces per piece of underwear um, when typically... Uh, I guess in the field, uh, industry standard is like three to five samples from a given piece of evidence, and then you move on. Well, he just, he took his time. And, and mainly the reason why it's that standard, from what I'm told, is that it's simply time and, and resources. I mean, it is very time-consuming to go through that many samples. But they, um, their lab director, who was actually um, at the crime lab in, at in St. Louis County when this first happened, and he remembered when the evidence came in to the crime lab there. He was very committed to this, and he said, "You, we're going to take as long as, it, as we need to. We're going to test as many samples as we possibly can, um, and we're going we're, we're gonna to do this until we don't stop. And I mean, mm -hmm. out of all those uh, 100, over 100 little tiny samples, and we're talking something about the size of a pea, a little piece of clothing, very small sample. Out of all those... Only one of them yielded this profile. And so they entered it into the, the national database, and they got a hit on February 27th. And March 1st was the day that they learned his name, hmm. Earl Cox. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so can you tell us more about this suspect? So he's already a convicted felon in prison for child pornography charges these days. Uh, but what else do we know about him and, you know, and the time before he was behind bars? Um, Kim did some research into his uh, life in St. Louis growing up, his high school and that sort of thing. So could you tell us about that? Sure. He went to Jennings High School and he... I think he was uh, a typical student. He was um, involved in thespian, I guess, theater, and um, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say he, he appeared to be popular. At least um, he um, he lived in Jennings uh, through high school, and then uh, was a native of St. Louis, and then went into the military in. Um, I guess 1975, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. Um, we're still trying to do a little bit more um, to find some relatives of his in, in the St. Louis area and his connection to the St. Anne area. Um, we know uh, through the reporting that he came back um, and lived in the St. Anne or, or the St. Louis area from about uh, 1993 to 1995. He lived in the Ferguson area. Um, he had a sister whose home was about three doors away from the elementary school where Angie uh, was a student. Um, and he also, I think his mother had a home that was maybe a half mile from where uh, Angie's bus stop uh, would have been on St. Mm -hmm. Gregory. Yeah, so. yeah, it was very interesting. I mean, the police definitely made a point in the court documents uh, that were charging him with uh, murder first, kidnapping, and sodomy. The police really went out of their way to point out just how close he was to the site where she was abducted and her home at the time that this was going on. So when he went off to the U.S. Air Force and he was stationed in Germany, he was uh, court-martialed and convicted of molesting four little girls that he was babysitting there at the time. So he went to prison for a time. He was released in the, in the mid-1980s. And uh, then in 1989, he was um, charged, arrested and charged, with molesting two seven-year-old girls in Overland. And at the, the alleged offenses in that case happened again in 1989, and they were at a park right behind Angie's school. And um, so they made a point to note that in the charging documents. And um, also when he was released um, from prison in 1988 for the crimes in Germany, he gave an address along Wis Wismer Avenue sorry, in Breckenridge Hills, um, which is a quarter mile away from the site where Angie was abducted. And uh, so you can see that he was very familiar with this area, had a lot of connections to this area. Um, it's interesting that we're talking about a mile, a, roughly a mile and a half, two miles at the most of, a, of an area here. And there are three separate municipalities for each of mm -hmm. these locations. Yeah. We have Breckenridge Hills, we have Overland, we have St. Anne. Um, and then he did live in Ferguson for a time uh, between 1993 and 1995. And then he moved to Colorado at some point after that. And he really um, was off the radar, at least on the criminal side of things, for a long time. 
Um, it turns out that he was um, an administrator for an international online child pornography network. And um, his screen name was The Wizard. And the reason that he was caught was because an undercover agent, FBI agent, actually started engaging with him over emails and pretending she was a 14-year-old girl, set up a meeting. You know, we've all heard these to catch a predator scenarios. And they caught him. And when they went to search his home, that was when they discovered he was the wizard that international authorities had been hunting for years. Um, And the takedown of that computer uh, network led to, I think, something like 60 arrests across the globe, Um, multiple countries, multiple sites. Um, So he went to prison in 2003 completed his sentence for those crimes in 2011. Um, But federal prosecutors at that time felt he was dangerous enough to certify him as a sexually dangerous person, which allows the government to keep someone incarcerated. Um, And there's hearings and that sort of thing for the person to appeal and everyone to revisit the case and that sort of thing. And those have gone on through the years because he has certainly appealed it since 2011. But he's been unsuccessful and he remains in a federal uh, medium security institution in North Carolina. But he is considered a patient uh, there. And and so it's it's interesting that he's he's been there all this time and that experts felt that he was dangerous enough to do that too. I mean, and the reason we have that uh, qualification is due to the Adam Walsh Act um, in 2006 that allowed the government to create this uh, sexually dangerous person um, category. Well, so is there any indication that police were close to identifying uh, Cox as a suspect before, especially given this criminal background uh, that we've talked about? Is it odd that the dots weren't weren't connected earlier, that uh, this possibility wasn't explored? Well, that is a huge question at this point, and I can tell you, and Kim can probably tell you too, we've been talking to a lot of the veteran officers that were involved in this case, and honestly, they are sitting around wondering themselves, my gosh, how could this have happened? And so far, what we're hearing is basically that, you know, in 1993, when this happened, there weren't databases available to quickly look for sex offenders and and zero in on someone immediately. Um, Communication between agencies, like I said, we're talking about a mile and a half area here with three different jurisdictions that had their own police departments. Um, So it is quite, the prosecutor yesterday, I mean, Tim Lomar in St. Charles County, he was only 20 years old when this was going on. So he he only knows so much. But I mean, he tried to answer that question too. And he said, you know, it's quite possible that the hundreds of officers that were involved in chasing down the hundreds of leads that poured in never even knew about the offenses in Overland just four years before this happened. It's it's quite possible they never knew. Yeah. Um, and so from the press conference the other day, Kim, uh, you reported it's very possible that someone else was involved in Angie's death. Uh, is there any indication what that means? Uh, or over the years was this thought to be a lone actor situation? Can you fill us in on that? Sure. Yeah. That what, what Lomar said was was interesting to me. He he made it sound like they are still looking at some some possible suspects and he said a, an additional arrest is possible. Um, someone asked him specifically about uh, at the press conference someone asked him specifically about Angie's stepfather 
and he wouldn't address that 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 head on. So, um, you know, the stepfather, Ron Bone, has said he had nothing to do with it. He he told me that as recently as Tuesday. And, you know, Ron Bone has been interviewed by them many times. He has um, taken a lie detector test. He has he's given up his, um, you know, hair samples for DNA analysis. So and, and I, I can tell you, there are some people that believe he um, might have had some connection and, and others who say absolutely not. So uh, he was shown the picture of Cox and he told me that he, you know, might have recognized the face, but he didn't know if he knew the face from work. He was a mechanic up at the Sears store at Northwest Plaza if you knew someone like that on the street. I mean, who knows? This It, it could mm-hmm. be anyone. That's what Ron is telling us. So, yeah. And one more thing I should mention, too, back to the question about um, was he ever on their radar. Um, four years after Angie's body was found, um, there, the FBI created a list of sex offenders in the area. And um, I think... Tim Lomar said there were as many as 100 offenders on that list. And he he was asked, well, why wasn't Mr. Cox questioned then at, at four years even after after this happened? And he honestly just said he, he doesn't know. It's impossible to know because so many of the investigators have retired. They've even died. It's It's impossible to know, okay, we know this list existed because we have it in the records, but we don't know what was done with it. Was it ever divvied out, you know, were the names divvied out to certain people and and were those detectives, did they go out and ever question them? Um, But he also did mention that had he been questioned at that point, he really wouldn't have been anything more than a name on a list and he could have easily said nothing and they really wouldn't have had any probable cause to to push him further. so I know Angie's mother died a couple years ago, uh, but besides the, the stepfather you've mentioned, are there, you know, close relatives of hers remaining, uh, you know, to whom this development might bring some closure? Yeah, that's that's one of the also tragic mm. parts of this story, that Diane Bone, who loved her daughter dearly and, you know, went into a deep depression after this, uh, just never got to see this day when someone was arrested. And, you know, she had told, I talked to her sister-in-law yesterday. She had told her sister-in-law and other relatives that she never thought the person who did this to Angie would be caught. She had talked, she and her husband had talked to a psychic and the psychic told them that. And she believed what the psychic said. And her depression just went even deeper. You know, and this, it's so sad because she... At the time that Angie disappeared, she had, Diane had a two-year-old, two-year-old son who's now 28. Um, years later, she, she gave birth to another boy. His name is Richie. He's 16, and I met with him the other day. And so Richie, of course, never, never met Angie, but grew up in that household where, you know, people would, you know, they, they knew what had happened to that family. And and then uh, when Diane became sick with cancer, Richie would stay home and care for her while Ron, uh, an over-the-road truck driver, was out of town. So this, the impact that it has had, not just on the community, but especially on this family, is just, it, it's hard really to, to understand um, and just to see, to see the survivors and how it's impacted them is 
Mm-hmm. Very sad. Yeah. Kim, how present is Angie still in that household? I mean, I know they moved, right? Uh, from they did. Yeah, they did move. They actually, Ron was telling me that police asked them to stay in the house on Wright Avenue. They didn't want them to leave. I, I'm not quite sure. I think they wanted to keep a close eye on Ron and and Diane and just make sure they knew where the family was. But, you know, they wanted to to leave to find a new place. They felt they needed more room. And again, just the memory of, of Angie was a little tough. So, so they moved about a mile east on the other side of St. Charles Rock Road into a, uh, uh, an area called Woodson Terrace, and that's where Ron and Richie live now. You know, they have photographs of, of Angie in the home. Um, in the backyard is a, is a tool shed with a lawnmower and Angie's pink bicycle. And Ron showed it to me the other day. She was very proud of that bike. She won it in a contest at a toy store. Um, it had a radio, you know, so his, yes, his, uh, Angie is, is very evident in that house. He keeps the memory of her alive, um, even to Richie, who never met her. You know, she has a paternal grandmother who's still alive. Um, her paternal grandfather has also died since this happened. But yes, enough relatives who talk about Angie and talk about Diane to try to keep their memory alive. So, uh, so what happens next from here? Are our eyes on this this very possible subsequent arrest, or, uh, or and what happens to to Cox as well? You know, what what are your eyes on here going forward? So, Cox will have to be extradited to Missouri uh, to face the charges here. Also, what was announced yesterday is uh, back from that 1989 case in Overland with involving the two little girls. Um, During the course of this investigation, once they got his name, the investigators that were on the case, uh, they traveled out of state to find one of the victims, and she has agreed to testify against Cox. So they are saying that charges are likely, additional charges against Cox are likely out of St. Louis County uh, in, in reference to the Overland case as well. So we'll keep an eye out for when those charges come down as well. Um, So... That's sort of what's next on the horizon. Gotcha. Uh, well, I know our time here is drawn to a close, but uh, I mean, you guys have followed this more closely than anyone. Anything else to to add or some concluding thoughts about all this? I guess I would just say that one of the things that the police stressed at the press conference yesterday was uh, they released a photo of what uh, Mr. Cox looked like back at the time of when this happened, 1993. And they're asking anyone that saw him or that may have known him or anything, if it jogs their memory in any way, to call and tell the police what they remember from that time. Because there's still a lot of unanswered questions. They still need to know if he acted alone. Um, and, And they're also trying to figure out where he kept Angie for the nine days that she was alive. Um, And so they're hoping that any Anyone who might remember his face, might remember seeing him during that time, can call in and, and help investigators. Gotcha. Yeah, and that composite sketch that you're talking about, that they released at the time, they said it was based on a description of someone seen driving in Angie's neighborhood. The person was driving an older model sedan, 
faded blue, but in generally good condition. So that kind of thing. If this, it's been it's been a long time, but but now that they're putting that composite sketch back out there, in, in addition the, the the photograph of the suspect, they're really looking for people to come forward again. So. Well, uh, well, Kim and Christine, thanks so much for the time this morning and for all the great work here. Um, once again, a, a reminder that this podcast and all our others uh, can be found on our website at stltoday.com slash podcasts. I'm Bryce Gray, and thanks once again for listening.